Hello, and this is a special audio news programme from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I'm Derek Thorne, and in this programme, we'll be looking at a series of papers on energy and health that have just been released by The Lancet. The aim of this series is to bring a public health dimension into the debate surrounding energy use, energy production and climate change. We'll be asking about the ways in which energy can impact on health, both positively and negatively, and what changes need to take place to make sure energy policy treats people in all countries fairly. We'll also be looking at how cities may have to change, particularly with regard to transport, and we'll hear about the need to reduce meat consumption in coming years. First then, let's hear about the problems we face. How does energy use lead to poor health? Paul Wilkinson of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine says there are many ways and he began by explaining the situation in the developing world. The major problems of energy and health linkages arise in the developing world and there are two major aspects of that. Uh, Essentially they they both arise from the fact that there is inadequate access to clean energy. In particular there are 1.6 billion people without access to electricity and that has adverse effects on health through denying people the resources and uh, things which enable them to fulfill their human potential and it has impacts on healthcare. But also because they don't have access to the clean energy sources they tend to use biomass fuels for heating and cooking within their homes. And we know many adverse effects arise from very high levels of indoor air pollution in particular that arise when they use uh, inefficient stove technology for burning biomass fuels. And indeed, in global terms at the moment, there are larger impacts. Um, About 1.6 million deaths arise each year from air pollution from uh, indoor cooking using biomass fuels. This is a major, the major current impact from, from uh, energy use uh, globally and of course the burden falls on the low income populations, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. And can you just quickly give me an idea of, of the numbers of deaths we're seeing annually from things like this? Um, well overall uh, indoor air pollution is about 1.6 million deaths per year, uh, outdoor air pollution is about 0.8 million deaths per year. But I mean, added to that, there are many much larger burdens of uh, illnesses, particularly among children and affecting women disproportionately, from respiratory illnesses, cancers uh, and cardiovascular illnesses in particular. If we turn now to the more developed countries, what, what, what kind of issues are there here? Well, I think the issue, we, we also suffer, even in high-income countries, from uh, exposure to outdoor air pollution um, and from perhaps over-access to energy resources, such that uh, it means that we, don't, we aren't as physically active as we could be because we rely on, on, on motorised transport for everything. It brings accident risks and they essentially arise because we are so heavily dependent on motorised transport. For us, there are potential benefits from trying to essentially move, move away from our heavy dependence on fossil fuels because of the effects that arise through climate change, on the one hand, but also the direct exposures now from outdoor uh, pollution concentrations. But also, if we can adjust behaviour or encourage people to walk and cycle, be more active, to live in more energy-efficient homes, there are very real health benefits that arise from that now. Lower exposure to pollutants, more physical activity, protection against cold temperatures during winter periods if you have a better insulated home. All of those things have direct benefits to health now, aside from addressing any future impacts from climate change. One of the key terms that came out here was inequities, we could say effectively injustices that exist around the world. Could you just give me an idea of the scope of those and how they should guide policy? Well, the inequities are enormous. I mean, there are huge variations between the most developed and the least developed countries in terms of energy use overall. I mean, it's more than 20-fold variation, I think, at country level between the the richest and poorest. And the uh, the central 
contrast is that there are some many people, I've referred to the approximately 2 billion, who don't have access to clean energy, who really are very disadvantaged because of all the consequences that their lack of access to energy has, contrasted with those of us in the highest income countries who are probably overexposed or have a, too great an access to energy and are also suffering adverse effects through routes like obesity, through outdoor air pollution and so on. To address climate change, we are going to need to take some fairly radical steps globally. And it's the only realistic step of way of doing that, I think, is to share the burden equitably, which means to those of us in the higher income country settings to reduce proportionately much greater our use of energy and to allow those in the poor income settings to increase theirs because the, the differences at the moment are so great indeed. And any measure of equitable distribution of the burden means a diversion of resources and energy use essentially from the highest income to low income settings. Paul Wilkinson of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The series focuses on a number of areas that are relevant to both energy and health and one of these is livestock production and the consumption of meat. A team of authors proposes that global meat consumption will have to come down because it causes such a large amount of carbon emissions. But apart from the environmental effects and the improved health associated with that, there will also be a direct benefit from reduced red meat consumption, for example. Nicholas Solomon found out more from John Powells of Cambridge University. Globally, production of livestock products, but principally meat, is a major source of greenhouse gas emission. Uh, not so much carbon, but uh, methane and nitrous oxide, other important greenhouse gases. Not only is it big at the moment, but it's set to get even bigger if we don't change. So that uh, as lower income countries get richer, if we don't change, then they will eat more meat like we do, and the global effects could be very bad. Now, many groups have recognized that agriculture is a source of greenhouse gases but have despaired of being able to do anything about it. We've looked a bit hard at this and we think well why not because if you say that we can't do anything about that then all the other sectors have to do more and if we do think that we can actually manage to contain the increase in greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture and from especially from livestock production then we're making contribution to the whole picture and realistically and internationally the only way that this might be done is by a contraction and convergence scenario because it would be unrealistic to expect low and middle income countries to give up aspirations to eat more high levels of meat if the rich countries were not also reducing. How drastic would the changes have to be to achieve some sort of benefit? Well for illustrative purposes we've taken this um, modest reduction in global average and we said well what happens if we aim for that for the whole human population for the middle of this century so that would involve the average rich country consumption of meat being more than halved but actually not reducing much below what is already the case in Japan but that would leave room for the poor countries to actually increase their meat consumption because we have to bear in mind that, and this was emphasized today that there are major issues of equity here if the earth has a finite carrying capacity the more of that capacity that's taken up by the rich part of the world human population the less that's left over for the rest now one may or may not be politically egalitarian, but just from a point of view of political realism, it's very unlikely that we'll be able to achieve what we need to achieve internationally unless it is based on some politically feasible proposal. The chemicals used during farming obviously also have an impact on the environment, but also 
when animals fart, um, they release a lot of methane. methane. So would reducing consumption not cause an adverse effect in this way? Reducing the amount of greenhouse gas emissions uh, associated with the existing level of production is called mitigation. And um, there are a lot of possibilities for mitigation. Animals produce more meat, methane in their breath if their foodstuff is suboptimal. Now, the implication of this, actually, is that animals in feedlots, which we usually think of as being environmentally bad, actually release relatively little methane because there's an economic incentive to optimize their feeding. It's the animals that are grazing on rather rough and suboptimal food, and optimizing their diets is not going to be easy. Also, it's, there, there are millions of producers of livestock products in low- and middle-income countries, and actually getting them to change their practices won't be easy. So there are a number of mitigation strategies, and of course they should all be pursued vigorously, but that's only going to be part of the answer. And the expert opinion at the moment is that if we were to implement all of the existing means for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, we would only probably reduce them by about 20% per unit of product. So it's worthwhile, but it's not going to be the full solution, which is why we emphasise the need to reduce consumption as well. John Powells of Cambridge University. Another paper in this series on energy and health looked at transport, and it proposed that entire urban areas should become car-free. This, said the authors, could cut mortality in early middle age by one-third. Peter Goodwin talked to study author James Woodcock and began by asking what his team found in their study city, London. Well, when we looked at London, we found that about 70% of car trips are less than 8 kilometres. Now, that is not an unreasonable distance for most people to walk or cycle. So that even with the city and trips as they are at the moment, there is a huge potential for replacing car trips with walking and cycling and for the longer car trips with public transport. Now, in in other cities where potentially they are more sprawled, where people are travelling further, then we are talking maybe first about getting more changes in land use and bringing things closer together. So we've got to think about these, these, these two strategies of modal shift, getting people onto the lower emitting, healthier modes, and of changing the design of cities together. And a statistic sticks in my mind, you've got about a one-third uh, reduction in premature mortality for women in early middle age if they stop driving cars from one of your calculations. But uh, I've got to ask you, how might all of this Uh, impact health professionals? What could doctors and medical professionals do to make these sorts of changes happen, which I I imagine are largely political? Yes, I mean, clearly these are political decisions, but I mean, health professionals do have an important role to to play in terms of, you know, advocacy, in, in terms of trying to get health impact assessment on the agenda for transport policies and, and of trying to, you know, there are lo- many local initiatives that, that, that people can be involved in, in terms of trying to get routes for wa- walking and cycling um, to school, in terms of how people get access to their surgeries. I mean, there, there are many things that can be done at a local level that set good, you know, positive examples that can be taken on. So just as doctors were role models in giving up smoking, for instance, do you think they could become role models in a a less energy-consuming transport policy? Very much so. I mean, in fact, ironically, uh, doctors are one of the first groups in the UK to really take up driving on a big uh, big scale. So, you know, if we can see a reversal of that trend on public health arguments, if we can plan our hospitals so that people get their 
you know, that they're easily accessible by public transport, by walking and cycling, that people don't have to drive, that, then I, I think there's a very positive role that health professionals can play. You described the big benefits in a city like London, but what about cities in other parts of the world, say in India or Nigeria? Well, I mean, if you look in India at the moment, what you've got is a huge increase in type 2 diabetes. You've got a big increase in urbanization, and that's associated with increasing um, energy consumption and reduced physical activity. So we've got a, a huge burden developing there from the kind of adoption of uh, Western lifestyles. At the same time, there is most uh, road traffic crashes and, and fatalities occur in developing countries. So that is a very big public health burden as well. You know, however, still most people in those cities uh, get around by walking and in some cases by cycling. So there is a potentially big um, constituency of people who would already benefit from designing the city to encourage walking and cycling. Often, you know, you have cluttered pavements, you don't have good access for pedestrians, you don't have safe road crossings, you don't have uh, any kind of priority given to cycles. Um, you, you have it kind of often accepted that motorisation is going to keep on increasing. And I, I think that would have very many negative consequences if that was allowed to carry on. James Woodcock of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Now, we just heard mention there of what health professionals can do. So let's hear some more about that from the editor of The Lancet, Richard Horton. Peter Goodwin asked him about which groups of people this series has been targeted at and what they should be doing. Doctors as professionals themselves in making the advocacy case for energy um, equity, but also public health community much more widely and international health agencies such as the World Health Organization and, and groups such as the World Bank have a vital role to play in making the case for combating greenhouse gas emissions and thinking about health as an impact assessment of that. And just one or two very practical things, what sorts of things could health professionals be doing in their daily life and when they're talking with patients? We need to be advising patients about the health benefits um, for themselves and their families, about taking more physical exercise, about not using their cars, about cutting down their meat consumption, and about engaging in a public debate, actually, in relation to where our energy policies are going, thinking more about the role of nuclear and also renewable technologies. These are health questions. They're not just political questions. Richard Horton, editor of The Lancet, in which this series of papers on energy and health has appeared. Now, finally, we've heard about action on an individual level, but what about large-scale policy changes? Andy Haynes, director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, is another author in this series, and I asked him what policies need to come into place, firstly with regard to the developing world. The policies that really need to be brought into place are, first of all, improved energy efficiency cookstoves. And there are economic alternatives available. They also ultimately need access to cleaner fuels, such as modern gaseous and liquid fuels, such as uh, biogas or liquefied petroleum gas. Also, we believe that providing clean energy will improve the prospects for development because obviously at the moment people spend a lot of time collecting wood and other sources of, of energy and that time will be freed up to be used for more productive activity. In addition, electrification itself could bring major public health dividends by, both by bringing people access to lighting, communications technology, also supporting the health sector, providing lighting and heating for health facilities um, and enabling refrigeration and so on. At the same time, we're saying that in high-income settings such as in the UK, 
there are health benefits to be had from policies that will also reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we've outlined a couple of those. One is uh, changes in transport policy, particularly involving promotion of active transport, which involves increased um, cycling and walking and use of public transport uh, as distinct from the private car. And that, we believe, would um, produce substantial health gains because it will reduce obesity uh, and therefore will reduce many of the diseases that go along with obesity such as diabetes, increasing cancer risk, cardiovascular disease um, and so on. Um, a lot of the focus here seems to have been on uh, changing the way we use energy and the way we produce it to have an effect on health. Can it though work the other way around? Can we actually focus on health and thus have positive effects on the way in which we use and produce energy. I mean, an example would be, uh, you know, families living in rural areas of a developing country who, if they have greater health, the family size may need to be less and so yes, their consumption yes, might be less. Yes. So can we look at it that way too? I think we can. I mean, certainly population is a very important part of this whole uh, discussion. Some people have said in the past, well, poor people don't really emit very many greenhouse gases, so perhaps population is not very important. I don't think that's true because population is, is crucial for, an, for a number of reasons. One is that it will make it easier to address the, the lack of energy that, that poor people currently suffer from. Secondly, of course, it will have a less of a burden on the, on the land mass, on, on the, for example, land degradation. Currently, land is being degraded, uh, desertification, uh, land is being cleared for uh, crop production and for meat production, and that will reduce the pressure on that. Andy Haynes, Director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, bringing to an end this special audio news programme on energy and health. There will be more from us soon, so please keep checking the website at lshtm.ac.uk. And until next time, goodbye.